You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of the Public Engagement Panel Session. The session featured three speakers, Professor Brendan Kane from the University of Connecticut, Dr. Jason McElligot, Keeper of Marsh's Library and Adjunct Professor in the UCD School of History, and Michael Iffey from History Hub and Real Smart Media. The session was chaired by conference co-organiser Dr. Eamon Darcy. Okay, uh, good afternoon everybody. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming uh, to, um, obviously to all the proceedings and to today's uh, roundtable discussion on public engagement and public history. It's a great honour to introduce our three speakers. Um, I'm just going to introduce them first and they're going to give um, a 15 minute talk about their experiences of public engagement, of public history. Um, as Brendan Kane, um, who's, sitting here to my, uh, who's sitting here to my right, uh, has said, why do we do public history? It's to spark discussion, and that's the point of today. Um, so, Brendan Kane, it's a great honour uh, to, to, to introduce uh, you uh, as from the University of Connecticut, and obviously his work is well known to all of us, um, all of us who study Tudor in Stuart Ireland. Um, he has co-edited a collection of essays on Elizabeth I of Ireland, and he has also uh, written a great book, The Politics and Culture of Honour in Britain and Ireland. Um, and today he'll be talking of his experiences in curating uh, an exhibition uh, in the Folger Shakespeare Library. Um, and then to uh, Brendan's right is, uh, is, is Mike Liffey. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank Mike. Uh, he's our resident paparazzi. I don't know whether you've noticed that. He's been taking pictures of us all. Uh, but also he is ed- co-editor of the History Hub. And he's absolutely fantastic. And uh, he, all of us here at Tudor Stewart Ireland would like to thank him for the great work he's doing with the podcasting. So he's the man responsible for us to be able to reflect on the papers and listen to them again. So we all owe him a, a, um, a, a great word of thanks. And we'd like to obviously hope to, hopefully this relationship will continue in the future. And then last, by no means least, we, um, we have Dr. Jason McGilligot, who's the keeper of Marsh's Library. Anyway, with no further ado, I will hand over to Brendan. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Eamon. And first of all, just let me thank uh, the organisers for having me to speak on the panel. It's a really great honour and fantastic to speak with uh, the other panellists. And um, I should say, just as I uh, start out, the... So I'll speak about my experience at the Folger, but one of the other reasons why I have an interest in public history is that I'm also the, I'm the associate director of our Humanities Institute at the University of Connecticut. So one of the things that I do is oversee public outreach efforts um, and the building of networks. And so to see a conference like this that you have all put together that brings together scholars, but also you know, people from outside of the academy, it's absolutely a model, I think, of how these types of conversations should work. And so now I'm going to tell, give you the story of an example of things really not working. Um, so as I was saying to uh, Mike and uh, Jason, my role is as Eeyore on this panel and to bring everyone down. So the email denouncing me as, a, as an apologist for genocide came at a particularly bad moment. Saturday morning, so my guard was down. Shouldn't I be watching cartoons with the kids and relaxing after a massive breakfast? Serves me right for checking my work email on a weekend morning. The email arrived while I was still in the glow of what I felt was the greatest experience in my professional life, the opening of an exhibition that I had co-curated with my friend and colleague, Tom Heron, at the Folger Shakespeare Library. It was entitled Nobility and Newcomers in Renaissance Ireland. The opening was a packed gala event presided over by the Irish ambassador and the director of the Folger and attended by family, friends, colleagues, and hundreds of others. Tom and I gave opening addresses, welcomed guests, and reveled in an evening of excitement, support, hors d'oeuvres, and booze, free booze, the best kind. Seemingly a fine time was had by all, certainly by my younger son Gavin, 10 at the time, who ate his body weight and finger food, and compliments and kudos flowed as freely as wine, and seemingly with the same effect, for on the following Saturday I was, as they say, fat and happy, relaxed, tired, and self-satisfied in the wake of what seemed a universally positive experience. From such heady heights, the fall was fast and far. 
The message I received denouncing the exhibition as an offence to the tragedy suffered by the Irish people was copied to the Folger and to the Irish Embassy and quickly made its way to the media. In short order, Tom and I found ourselves likened to Holocaust deniers in the Irish-American press, and that was only the worst of several unflattering comparisons. Having grown up in a large Irish-American family, and as an Irish historian and an Irish speaker, I consider myself a part of that community, and the exhibition was in part intended to celebrate its past. To be painted an apologist for genocide and ethnic cleansing by those I considered my own was devastating. As difficult as it was to read the articles themselves, reading the comments was worse. We all know that internet comments can be an uncivil horror. Such knowledge hardly prepares you for being the object of the blogosphere wrath. After some initial forays in, I simply stopped reading the comments and hunkered down, ostriched away from comment threads, yet still nervous about what might start coming into my university email or phone. The Folger, too, was bombarded with comments. Many were positive and seemingly made in ignorance of the growing controversy. Others sought further information on early modern Ireland or asked follow-up questions related to the exhibition. But many others were negative and prompted by the initial media attack and the library's Facebook lit up in what seemed a pile-on of outrage. I had eagerly pursued the chance to curate the exhibition, keen to bring my interests, research, and ideas to a public audience. No one had to convince me of the potential joys and upsides of public engagement. They seemed self-evident and immensely attractive in a world otherwise confined to speaking with specialist peers or very non-specialist undergraduates. The perils of public engagement, however, I learned on my own, and a harsh lesson it was. One week feeling fat and happy was followed by two months of just bewilderment, mental paralysis, and a long-lingering blackness. My experience with the the perils of public engagement was primarily driven by the politics of Ireland and its diaspora, but nonetheless it has implications, I think, for any of us who seek to work in a professional capacity beyond the academy. Such work is increasingly popular amongst academics as they undertake blogging, outreach, community partnerships, experiential learning initiatives, and myriad other forms of public intellectual life. In particular, my particular tale offers a point of departure from which to think about the unintended consequences of efforts to present, in a public forum, research that addresses complex and sensitive issues. So this last statement raises the obvious question of what I mean by public engagement. And, you know, Mike and, and Jason will know much more about this stuff than I do. And uh, so hopefully, all right, you know, we can all build together. Um, but I should say not all forms of public engagement are the same, of course. Perhaps it's easiest to simply state what I'm not concerned with, namely the conscious courting of controversy and or the articulating of partisan positions that we typically associate with the public intellectual. This particular individual sets out to stir debate and knows that criticism in the blogosphere and in the press more generally is not only part of the job, it is a reward of it, proof that the writing forth has been successful and worthwhile. Paul Krugman and Niall Ferguson, to take two examples from opposite sides of the ideological spectrum, know full well that people are going to be coming for them. They're fine with it. They expect it. They presumably would feel disappointed if pushback were not forthcoming. This talk is not concerned with them. Rather, I'm concerned with those academics and students thinking about presenting their work to an audience beyond their peers and students. This might mean giving a lecture to a local society or answering questions to the local media related to a public event. It might be a bit more complex, such as working with a community group towards some goal of mutual interest, a project that might even include the participation of students. It may even be connected to an issue that is controversial, say community rights or local politics or contested matters of remembrance, like Cromwell's death mask. The point here is that while public engagement can take many shapes and forms, so too can the perils that come with it. And that fact, regardless of the particular mode of engagement one endeavors uh, to undertake, is worth reflecting on before venturing into uncharted territory. To make a crude division, we might think of the internal and external perils associated with such endeavors. By internal, I mean those originating within our own institutions. My own experiences at a research university in the U.S., the University of Connecticut, which has a complicated relationship with public engagement. Outreach is a vital part of the university's character and mission, in part because it is the state's flagship public institution and service to its citizens is, t- is a charge taken seriously and by some pursued quite seriously and vigorously. My own department, History, hosts the Connecticut State Historian, an appointed position with duties including the promotion, preservation, and study of local history, and actively encourages the pursuit of public history 
by our students, many of whom are involved in projects ranging from advocacy work to the creation of local history digital humanities databases and museum displays. However, outreach and research require time and effort. And the more time we put into outreach, the less time we can devote to research and writing. Making that choice can bring dire consequences, with failure to achieve promotion and or merit increases being the two most obvious. No one in my department could dream of getting tenure or reaching full professor for curating an exhibition, no matter how prestigious the venue. The person who published a monograph with an undistinguished press would best them in the merit pool every time. There is a furthermore interpersonal problem that may arise should you devote more energy to public engagement than to cranking out books and articles. Your colleagues might perceive you as a less rigorous scholar. Undoubtedly, research institutions like the University of Connecticut support and encourage what we might think of broadly as the public humanities. The adverse effects of outreach on one's reputation and place in the pecking order should be, if not non-existent, at least negligible since outreach matches institutional objectives. But we all know that talk around the departmental water cooler need not match administrators' pronouncements, and that there are those who feel firmly that public engagement is for the less talented and or the lazy. A public intellectual may be one thing, but a popular one is something else altogether. Whereas the former might be scoffed and sneered at by peers laboring in obscurity, the whiff of envy often being evident, the latter is more an object of open derision as a sellout and traitor to the cause of specialist scholarship, the worth of which is measured in part by its inaccessibility to a general audience. And again, this is why I think this conference is so successful. Um, now, of course, many universities and colleges actively promote public engagement, even including it in the metrics for promotion and merit. Internal perils in those cases can arise as a consequence of not stepping outside of institutional walls. The question then becomes, how does one choose which type of work to pursue in the public sphere? Whether one works at a more research or more service-focused institution, and I imagine this is the case in Ireland as well as, as the States, making that choice brings us face-to-face with certain external perils. Given that the quantity and quality of such perils are largely unpredictable and unique to each circumstance, I wish you to focus on the greatest and perhaps, perhaps most obvious of them, criticism that we, that we might term ugly. By the time we've completed graduate school, we are all used to and hopefully somewhat inured to harsh criticism. Perhaps we encountered it in comments on a seminar paper or more terrifyingly around the seminar table or at a conference or worse still after a job time. Even if one has personally avoided the academic takedown, and I have had no such luck, my two most traumatic intellectual experience coming in job talks, um, although I got the jobs, whatever. Anyway, um, <laughs> it was very bad though. Anyway, we have witnessed it firsthand or heard tell of some hair raising savagery. The perils of criticism within the profession are very real. Being the object of a peer's belittling wrath can make one, especially early in one's career, feel as if the future has gone dark. The reputation for being a careless, poor, or even unscrupulous scholar can close doors to talks, conferences, publication, and other opportunities. Unless the charges are based in proven malfeasance, however, the actual consequences rarely match the fevered panic of the junior faculty dark night of the soul. The infamous case of Michael Belsiles, erstwhile tenured professor and winner of the Bancroft Prize, who was run out of the profession, was not driven solely by a gun lobby, the NRA, scorned, but also by colleagues who judged him to have committed mistakes of such number and such gravity that he was deemed retroactively untenorable. Although extraordinary in its ad hominem uh, ferocity, the great English historian Lawrence Stone's early career experience of criticism demonstrates that a peer's takedown need, need not lead to professional death. Forty years after it occurred, Stone, who was no sweetheart himself, still described um, uh, the Davis Institute at Princeton, um, which he oversaw for many years, it's still referred to as the Stone Age, um, for his... Uh, uh, attention to detail to people's papers, shall we say. Anyway, Stone still described his former tutor, Hugh Trevor Roper's published destruction of his study of the rise of the gentry in early modern England as, quote, an article of vituperative denunciation which connoisseurs of intellectual terrorism still cherish to this day. <laughs> Stone, however, went on to a distinguished career at Princeton, evidence that even the most egregious examples of viciously fought controversy are enacted with a community that shares certain rules, albeit typically unwritten and unspoken, and generally seeks to maintain community harmony and order. 
Moreover, people who are gratuitously brutal to others are often ostracized or at least marginalized in the profession. Once you leave that community and start presenting your work and trying to engage the public, however, all bets on civil discourse are off. This is perhaps the most distressing aspect of controversies arising from public engagement. In the absence of norms or mechanisms for adjudicating or at least civilly managing disputes, most academics go quiet after the initial salvo and wait for their critics to tire. Once criticism of my exhibition started rolling in, my co-curator Tom and I scrambled to figure out what to do. The staff at the Folger was equally flummoxed, never before having faced such a situation. Evidently, exhibitions on Folger, uh, on Shakespeare's dramas are not quite the same as talking about English-Irish relations. Mine is a nature given to defensiveness, and I wrote numerous detailed responses to people who had posted, typically anonymously, in opposition to our presentation. Those responses never saw the light of day. I circulated them only amongst friends and colleagues, who always urged the caution of silence. Writing them offered some release and catharsis. I at least got to speak my thoughts. But on scent, they did nothing to quiet my detractors or bring civility to the disagreement. This quietism was not a unique strategy. I sought advice from people who had completed similar sorts of public projects. And to my dismay, the unanimous recommendation was, don't engage. Doing so would only escalate matters, and I was treated to harrowing tales of how responses intended to be steps forward in reasoned debate served instead as fuel on the fire. Disengage. I heard it like a communal mantra. I should not have been surprised the evidence was all there before me. More than once I've taught the controversy over the proposed Enola Gay exhibition at the Smithsonian, a controversy controversy so notable that it has been retraced in an article in the field leading the Journal of American History. Historians had hoped to mark the 50th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb over Hiroshima with an exhibit that explored the cost to humanity of the atomic age. They were hounded by public groups and individuals who insisted upon the celebratory We Won narrative, and eventually the museum's director scrapped the scholar's proposal. In spite of having explored with students this controversy and its context, I had failed to reflect upon it as a symptom of more general problems of public discourse. Surely one reason for rancorous public criticism is a widespread negativity towards academics in general and tenure in particular. As Greg Semenza has blogged in the Chronicle of Higher Education, whereas people often decry the lack of public engagement by intellectuals, there is a countervailing cultural current of anger towards the professoriate. In her recent 2014 commencement talk at Harvard Law School, the actor Mindy Kaling pointed out to graduates the oddity that while they should be proud of having worked so hard to attain their educations and degrees, they should understand if they enter politics or public service, they will spend their days distancing themselves from their Ivy League pasts. As she said, Mitt Romney preferred to hit the campaign trail as the Mormon guy rather than the Harvard guy. Talk radio and TV are awash with criticism of academics and education professionals are under attack from all points in the political spectrum. Tenure as an institution that protects professionals at all levels of education is constantly being challenged. Efforts at public engagement can tap into these anti-academic currents. The internet, with its largely unmonitored comment spaces, also serves up negativity, or serves to ramp it up. So for all these reasons and others, I stumbled out of the first few months after the Folger exhibition with a dim view of the public and the media. So as, as we were preparing the exhibition, however, worrying about potential negative reactions seemed a low priority. Job one was simply to finish the job. Tom and I spent seemingly countless hours selecting items to show, organizing case displays, prepping, writing, gallery, and catalog text, and so on. A museum installation, we quickly learned, requires a tremendous amount of work and a good deal of logistical acrobatics. What I learned more slowly but quite intimately is that consideration of how to deal with audience response, positive and negative, is part of the work of public engagement. Perhaps not as crucial as, say, choosing display items and writing case cards, but crucial, all the same, for making the experience rewarding for scholars and audience members alike. It must always be borne in mind. In the end, therefore, part of my frustration stemmed from anger over my own naivete or hubris. When we were creating the exhibition, Tom kept pointing out that we needed to speak to the tragic element in early modern Irish history, the massacres, the cultural destruction, the dislocations of colonization. We, of course, included materials that addressed these realities and included explanatory text to bring them front and center. Yet I remained insistent that we should move beyond the tragic and focus more on Irish agency in the world, thereby presenting a story about how the Irish, 
elites anyway, were active players in shaping events of the age, even if those efforts saw limited success. My justification for this, as I constantly told Tom, was that people understood the tragedy already, and it therefore made little sense to retell it. Why confirm widely held beliefs when we had the chance to present new perspectives on and details about the Irish past and English-Irish relations? Tom, more sensible than I, that's a very large group, just Tom happens to be a part of that group, um, was indeed correct. Had we not included the materials on massacre and loss that he suggested, the rough edge of our public reception would have been rougher still. This is not to say that critical reaction, which came from a small yet very vocal group, arose entirely from unwillingness to engage with the Irish past in new ways. Undoubtedly, some people were excited to think more broadly about the Irish past, but simply happened to disagree with how we had done so. And we certainly understand the position that the people who criticized came from. Certainly made sense. However, the pushback against our presentation did suggest limits on how controversial topics can be talked about in a public forum. Now, I don't mean to say that public engagement is all about peril. The benefits and joys are many and largely self-explanatory. In spite of myths that hold professors to be removed from the world in their ivory towers, many of us wish to engage widely about ideas, questions, and problems in the world. Again, this conference. Indeed, that's why many go into this line of work, and teaching affords the first real chance at such engagement. We come to the syllabus with certain ideas, they get honed by presenting them to the non-specialist audience that is the undergraduate class. They are further refined through interactions with students. Public history, as it's called in my discipline, can be seen as an extension of that initial outreach. Most of us remember the steep learning curve to effective teaching and wince thinking, thinking of scathing semester end evaluations. We also remember when we finally kind of got it and teaching became a rewarding experience. The same trajectory holds true for public engagement. The memory of the exhibition's aftermath remains raw and at times painful. However, doing the exhibition still counts among the greatest and richest experiences of my professional life. It does in part because it brought me into contact with so many wonderful new people at the Folger, in academia and amongst the public, and people with whom I taught or thought, learned, and enjoyed tremendous conversations and interactions. Much good has come from the project, too. On an institutional level, the University of Connecticut has now joined the Folger Consortium, something the school has been wishing to do for decades. Membership was not a result of the exhibition, but good working relations established over the course of putting it on likely helped. On a more personal level, I now have a wider network of colleagues and, I think, friends whom I met in the course of the project. Finally, on a professional level, I've gained much-needed insight into the perils that might dampen the positives just described. For these reasons, I most certainly would embark upon such a project again, and indeed in planning a number of them. Currently, I serve as the Associate Director of the University's Humanities Institute, and in that capacity, I'm charged with overseeing the development of public humanities. And I'd be happy to talk details of some of our initiatives, plans, etc. in the Q&A, should anyone wish. Nevertheless, I find myself reflecting on what I believe is the crucial weak spot in public engagement, the absence of means and modes by which sensitive and complex topics can be discussed and debated vigorously, yet still rationally and reasonably. That absence should remind us of how wonderful a place the Academy can be. Its members, typically, can argue passionately and unapologetically about ideas and issues that matter, and do so without fear of character assassination and other forms of egregious abuse. Such dialogue and ex exploration, however, should not be the sole preserve of the professoriate. Many of the comments that came into the Folger about our exhibition, while critical, simply grew out of a desire to debate in precisely the ways that academics do amongst themselves. By all accounts, ours is a brutally divisive age. All the more reason, then, for scholars not to retreat to their towers. Rather, we and the public at large should think seriously and collectively about how to make more intellectual activity public and more of the public intellectual and about how to bring all of us together around ideas and issues that interest and affect us. Not to do so carries the real peril. So my name is Mike Liffey. I'm co-editor of History Hub, historyhub.ie. Um, I have responsibility for managing the website, uh, recording videos and podcasts, editing posts, promoting the content on the site through our social media channels and doing that kind of work, and that's the website. It's, it's, it's pretty basic, but it, it does the job. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about History Hub and hopefully uh, our experience may be of use to those of you thinking of doing uh, similar engagement projects. Um, 
The good news is that there is an enormous amount of people out there uh, actively searching for not just the history content routinely produced by mass media, but content created by historians themselves, the real stuff. Um, so History Hub is a public engagement site based in the UCD School of History, which has been in operation since 2011. And uh, I don't know if he's here, but credit must really go to John McCafferty for supporting the initiative from the start, and to uh, Tygo Hanukon for continuing that support. Um, the tagline of the site is Connecting Past and Present, and the primary aims are to, um, uh, to provide an opportunity for historians to engage the wider public, uh, to showcase documents and images from UCD archives, and to provide a forum for historians to influence uh, public debate on, on policy issues. So in recognition of the fact that different people have different preferences, different strengths, different abilities when it comes to communicating their research, you know, we try to offer a number of different routes for historians to engage, albeit all web-based. Um, so History Hub, we try to produce and disseminate high-quality audio, video, and written content across four site sections. So from our podcasts to our history and policy papers, or from the archives documents to our commemoration section. Uh, so we're a broad church. Um, so for our researcher, the process of engaging the public, building a media profile, getting involved in broadcasting as a presenter or contributor can seem very daunting, and History Hope offers a really simple and useful way of taking a first step into that world and reaching a considerable audience uh, in the process. So our history and policy section, some of you may be aware, it's inspired very much by the historyandpolicy.org, which is a collaboration um, between historians at King's College London and Cambridge. It's a wonderful uh, resource and wonderful network, which joins policymakers, historians, uh, and people working in the media. Um, the example of historyandpolicy.org is uh, perhaps also useful when thinking about why the site is historyhub.ie rather than ucd.ie forward slash historyhub or ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash public engagement forward slash historyhub and so on. Uh, given that the primary aim of the site is to engage the public, we felt that the site would function uh, best if, like historyandpolicy.org, it were situated outside of the university web architecture. So free also perhaps from web branding guidelines and restrictions that can, that can uh, be within the university uh, web uh, rules. So the majority of our contributors are or were UCD-based, but taking a step towards the public and presenting the site as an independent entity has been really useful in terms of visibility, in terms of accessibility, and helping build a bond with a wider public audience who might automatically think perhaps that content produced by academics is not for them. Uh, department, department websites are geared towards staff and students and they're not there really to attract the public. So I think that's something worth thinking about if you're considering similar projects. Um, my own background is uh, in audio and video production. Like I said, I'm not an academic. Um, and my co-editor, Paul Rouse, his background is in, uh, he worked with Primetime for a long time as a reporter before taking up a position in, in, this, in the school um, as a historian. Um, so together we realised that we could create quite a lot of content, high quality content, uh, in-house, set up a website to host and disseminate that content. So we have a very proactive approach um, to content creation and public engagement, uh, but it's very much a DIY approach. Um, uh, but even, even though it is a DIY approach, the audience is quite considerable. So we've got about 3,000 to 4,000 users per month. Um, altogether, about 132,000 uh, podcast downloads and plays, um, which is corresponds to about 4,000 per month at the moment. Uh, Twitter, we've got 3,000 followers. I find Twitter really useful. If you, if, you, uh, uh, if you haven't got a Twitter page, I would highly recommend setting up one. It's, it's uh, really useful. And uh, our mailing list is uh, about 800 subscribers. So if there are people who have logged on and subscribed to the mailing list. They want our content. Um, then the audience of top country, obviously, is Ireland. 60% of people who come to the site are from Ireland. And then the 40% remainder come from these countries. So our audience ranges from people with a casual interest in history uh, to amateur historians, second-level history teachers and students, undergrads, postgrads, people working in arts and culture, journalists, politicians, civil servants, and professional media researchers actively seeking material for their programs. So within our own audience, you have media professionals who can potentially bring your content to much larger audiences. And that has happened a number of times. So if you look at this, um, 
you'll see that the spikes correspond to where like national media, either print media um, or radio have gotten onto something that we've done and then they've featured it on, on, on uh, like I said, the radio or TV um, or, or in print. So it's almost a seven or eight times increase in the amount of people who would come to the website after our material is featured uh, in the national media. And we've been building up those relationships. So that took a lot of, that took a lot of groundwork. Um, there's enormous public appetite for historical content, as well as radio programs like Talking History, The History Show, In Our Time. All the major broadcasters across TV and radio routinely feature history segments on their flagship weekday programs. And many media researchers subscribe to our mailing list and Twitter feed. On an average weekday, you could have several history slots across the program schedule, and the potential audience is considerable. Um, radio, for example, 84% of all Irish adults listen to the radio every weekday, which is kind of staggering. Um, so, for example, the Sean O'Rourke show has about 327,000 listeners, Pat Kenny 134,000 and so on. So the audience is very considerable. But very often, these history segments can get squeezed in the context of a heavily news-orientated media cycle. Um, also, when it comes to the treatment of history and historians more generally, um, it tends to be a heavily mediated experience. So I'm, I'm thinking in particular of, of like talking head style historical documentaries where historians are present but arguably there to supply sound bites which might give weight to a, a predetermined narrative arc which you, the historian, may or may not have been consulted about. Um, European, British and Irish history are littered with events and battles of all kinds that have enormous name recognition uh, for, amongst the general public. So there's a great opportunity for historians to create accessible, informative, educational and engaging histor historical material. And I think that's one of the keys to History Hub. Um, we tried to get out of your way. These are the only talking heads that really matter. <laughs> um, so there are lots of great tools out there for that I use and that you can also use. Um, so, for example, podcasting, since its development in 2004, has had an enormous influence on how spoken word audio content is produced and also consumed. Um, podcasting gives people an unprecedented amount of choice in what they get to listen to and when they get to listen to it. Um, it has also created an enormous opportunity for producers of history podcasts because with the time pressures of radio, you can explore a topic in as much or as little detail as you'd like, although... Just because you can doesn't mean necessarily that you always should. Um, just to explain what a podcast is, so when I take the audio off this recorder and I put it online, it'll be online as like just a little MP3 file, but that, that's just a piece of audio online. It's not a podcast. What makes a podcast a podcast is that you can subscribe to it so that every, each time there's a new episode in a podcast series, you automatic, automatically get that delivered to you in whatever way you choose to consume it. So if you see here on SoundCloud, if I follow the History Hub SoundCloud page, anytime I post a new podcast episode, including the Tudor and Stewart 2015 podcast, which will be soon enough, <laughs> uh, you'll see them come up if you follow our page. And similarly with, uh, on iTunes, if iTunes isn't installed on this computer, but if you, if you download or subscribe to a, our various podcast series on iTunes, the, the most recent episode will be delivered to your device. And because iTunes is Apple, it generally works best on an iPad or an iPod or an iPhone. So it's a very convenient way of consuming this kind of content. Um, so one History Hub podcast series that really succeeded in um, engaging in a lot, a lot of people um, was uh, Michael Affin's The Irish Revolution series. Um, so I recorded this 10-lecture course during Michael's final semester teaching in UCD before retiring in 2010, although he's coming out of retirement for one last gig uh, in, in January to, to do The Irish Revolution again, an updated version, I believe. Uh, so Michael had taught the course since the 1970s, and it's a really wonderful resource. Um, I waited until the website was up and running in 2012, uh, to make sure we could maximize the audience for it. And the first part appeared online in February 2012 with subsequent episodes arriving every fortnight. Uh, the gap between episodes was chosen quite deliberately so that the 1916 Rising episode would appear in April and duly coincide with, the, coincide with the date of the Rising anniversary. And as you know, people are anniversary crazy. Uh, this fact really helped with efforts to promote the series and was featured across a number of different websites including broadsheet.ie and a slot on the history show itself. So all of this kind of stuff, it gathered a lot of momentum with the result that if you, well, if you squint there, you'll see that The Irish Revolution was the number one podcast in Ireland. 
um, in by February, uh, not by February, by April 24th, 2012, was the number one podcast in Ireland in the society and culture category on iTunes ahead of shows like uh, RTE's Mary Finucane, which is like listenership of about 360,000, Liveline, News Talks, Talking History, BBC's In Our Time, take that Melvin. So since, <laughs> since being launched, it has amassed well over 60,000 downloads and plays and the the success, I think, of the Irish Revolution illustrates what can be generated entirely from resources in-house. You know, again, there was no external production company or outside PR engaged to bring this about. You know, apart from the UCD Arts and Celtic Studies funding of the recording of it, that's all we had. So it it also illustrates the potential of podcasting and the way it has transformed long-form broadcasting. You know, these are the 10 lectures are they're detailed 45 to 50 minute lectures which you might think in this day and age would count against them but they're brilliant lectures delivered in a really entertaining and accessible way so that's why they work History Hub has had a partnership with Cheater and Stuart Ireland since the first conference in 2011 uh, it's the highlight of my every year and uh, I've podcasted 85 papers and presentations since then um, and these are all available on iTunes and SoundCloud for you to enjoy. Yeah. SoundCloud is particularly useful because you can use it to um, embed podcasts. So if you see here, if I can find, yeah, there's last year's conference, which is almost as good as this year's conference. Um, you see share here. So if I like have my own website where you might have your own blog, where you blog about the area, you blog about research, and you can embed any episodes you want from last year. You can make the player look small or big um, and then you can actually if you join up to SoundCloud which is totally free you can uh, make your own playlist so if there are particular episodes that you want to engage with or things that are that are really within just the, the, the research area you're working in or if you have a class of students that you want to direct them to two or three podcasts that that you feel might be uh, beneficial to what they're studying you know you have a lot of you have a lot of freedom and a lot of possibility uh, using SoundCloud. More than iTunes is not really uh, equipped for the kind of social end of things. SoundCloud is very good for that. iTunes is more one-on-one -on -one delivery. SoundCloud is kind of uh, like a YouTube for audio almost. So when you put so much effort in, like the organizers of this conference have uh, every year into organizing a conference on this scale, it's a really good idea to have an output like a podcast series, which just extends the lifetime of, of an event acts as a useful resource for yourselves with parallel sessions I guess you're always missing something um, the wider network of researchers in your area and speakers can easily share their own podcast by SoundCloud or their, on their own social media pages and websites and using their teaching like I said uh, all of this gives History Hub because we're associated with the conference a really important function within the academic community so it's, it's not just about public engagement we're concerned with we're also we'd like to think facilitating, supporting and strengthening the engagement that exists between the conference, the attendees, researchers working in the field, and hopefully helping to get the word out to people who may consider attending in future years. Uh, one of the most useful features of the site, um, uh, for those of you who have contributed material or who are considering doing so, is that statistics tracking code is fully integrated within the code of the site and also for our various podcast series. So, for example, if as part of your funding requirements you need to demonstrate your engagement activities, I can provide full statistical reports showing how many people um, have accessed your material, where it's been accessed from, all that kind of stuff. So the number of downloads uh, since 2011 of all the series is pretty impressive. It's 43,058. So to conclude, and I just revisit my original point that there is good news for historians seeking to do this kind of uh, public engagement work. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of people out there actively searching, not just for history content routinely produced in mass media, uh, but content created by historians uh, themselves. So with the tools available, it's never been uh, easier to do this. So good luck. The engagement rock. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you for the invitation to uh, talk to this uh, session. I'll, I'll keep it uh, quite brief with just a, a few points, really. Just to start off, my background is as a historian of 17th century Britain, and I have to say, when I got the job as director of Marsh's Library, or keeper as it's called uh, in Marsh's, I was delighted because I thought, great, a sleepy little library. Uh, I can squirrel myself away for the next 10 or 15 years. Uh, through Recession Ireland, uh, write the books and articles, what can go wrong? 
Uh, as I've found, there's uh, perhaps as much, if not more, uh, administration uh, in a small uh, library like Marsh's than in your average uh, department. And I suppose I'm, I've ended up being almost like the uh, head of department. In a way, Marsh's, for those of you who don't know it, is a, is a curious beast. Uh, I like to describe it as an Oxbridge College library right in the heart of inner-city working-class Dublin. Uh, which is essentially what it is. Uh, it's established in 1707 uh, as an adjunct to Trinity. Uh, Marsh establishes it uh, and he envisages it in the same way, uh, working in the same relationship to Trinity as, for example, his college library uh, in Lincoln, uh, sorry, in Exeter in Oxford, did to the Bodleian. So, uh, so it, it does have that strongly academic focus, uh, but what pays the money and pays the bills uh, is engagement uh, with the public, uh, and uh, we that description of us as a, an Oxford uh, public library and working class inner city Dublin really uh, talks to the number of different audiences uh, that we have, and our audiences uh, are determined by our function. So uh, we have a, a lot of uh, tourist visitors, Irish, but also uh, foreign uh, as well. The overwhelming majority of the visitors uh, are foreign. Uh, we're a visitor centre uh, for the local uh, population as well, but we're also an academic. Uh, research library and oftentimes those visitors and attempts to reach out to those different types uh, of uh, audiences are not entirely uh, easy and sometimes the different audiences uh, are contradictory. Uh, I suppose if there's a reason why uh, the uh, organisers asked me uh, to talk today is that one of the things we've done in an old-fashioned library like Marsh's is we've decided very much to keep the interior experience in the library analogue uh, but as a result, direct result of that as a direct corollary of that as you're going into uh, the only building from the period uh, in Dublin which remains from in use for its original purpose uh, as a direct result of keeping the building analogue uh, we've heavily embraced uh, the digital in terms of, uh, of reaching out and uh, I think we've uh, done interesting work in uh, social media, Facebook uh, and Twitter, uh, or as the staff uh, call them, Twitface, uh, uh, over the last uh, number uh, of years uh, in terms of reaching out. And we find it useful in terms of highlighting the breadth and depth of the, of the collections and people are genuinely uh, surprised and, uh, and uh, amazed by the uh, breadth of the depth of the collections. Now, uh, I make a, a, a semi-professional living touring around telling people how to use Facebook uh, and Twitter. Uh, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to do that uh, today. Essentially, uh, if you're coming to listen to a bald, middle-aged guy in a sports jacket tell you how to do social media, you're in the wrong place. Uh, I'm not going to charge you for that advice, but that's really uh, the, the, the key advice that I don't tell the people who I charge. Uh, but essentially, uh, what I uh, do want to do is just show you in some of the ways that we've, we've reached out. I did a little experiment today. Uh, sometimes, and, and the key to social media is experimenting it and, and playing with it and realising that if it all goes wrong, nobody's going to die. Uh, and if things go wrong, we have a very clear uh, protocol. Anything which is potentially, uh, potentially problematic... Uh, I will post personally myself as the director and I will take responsibility for it. And it's often very hard uh, to, in bigger organisations to engage properly with social media because you cannot... Uh, the, the, the social world, social platforms do not respond to corporate entities. They prefer a uh, an individual touch, they prefer a personal touch and a level of irreverence that it's sometimes... Sometimes we cross over the line. Uh, in those times, the staff who are posting have to know uh, that if it goes right, they get the praise. Uh, if it goes wrong, I'll take the blame. And essentially, that's the way any institution has to work uh, with social media. But I did a little experiment today. Uh, yesterday, uh, in my absence, uh, a member of staff uh, posted what I would consider uh, a pretty lame uh, post today. Uh, Orby MacDell, for those of you who don't know, is a great figure uh, around Dublin, a great interest to many of us, but not of much interest uh, to people uh, throughout the world. Uh, probably not one of our uh, greatest posts. So today I thought, and we always have, uh, we have a, a joke in the library, we have, if the, everything, anything goes down badly, we always have a joke about, put up a map of Kilorglan. Uh, and... Uh, 
we, we tend to find anything with a bit of local history in it, uh, uh, you know, a bit of uh, you know, local engagement. The joke is, put up a map of Kilorglan, and we have a whole series of things that, uh, if something goes wrong, uh, we can always uh, uh, post. Uh, today, I tried uh, a little bit of engagement. I was a little bit cheeky, uh, and I got up quite early today, and I posted this seven hours ago, uh, and I said, what did Daniel O'Connell write from London in this letter, this is a letter in our collection, to his wife in Dublin uh, on the morning that the Emancipation Act passed? This is the envelope. It's addressed to Mrs O'Connell in Merrion Square from uh, Daniel uh, himself. And I said, if you give us 50 shares, we'll show you. Uh, it was a little bit cheeky. Uh, I wanted to see how it would work uh, and what would, uh, what would happen. Uh, and asking people to engage and giving them something intriguing and something uh, a little bit different meant in those seven hours uh, that 142 people had shared it. In practical terms, that means that 6,200 people have engaged uh, with that uh, Facebook post uh, in the last uh, seven hours or so. We also did it on uh, Twitter as well. Uh, and we asked people to retweet if they wanted to see what Daniel wrote to the wife on the day of the Emancipation Act. And it's very interesting to see. It's had 30 uh, retweets so, uh, so far, uh, including, and what's interesting about Twitter uh, is it's very, very useful in terms of reaching out uh, not just to other historians and members of the public, but journalists uh, and opinion formers uh, as well. Frank Coughlin, the review editor uh, in the uh, Irish Independent, uh, Sinead Desmond, uh, and TV3, uh, followed by 30,600 uh, uh, people. Uh, I can bet you by the end of today on Facebook that post will have been accessed by 10,000 people uh, and probably by the end of the day we'll be up to around uh, 60,000 people uh, in a network of people who've been uh, engaged in, in that post. So there's a way of gaming this uh, and, and, and engaging with it. And, and in a way it's a game. It has to be done in a light-hearted uh, way, in a lightweight light, uh, fashion. Uh, it's not the, the best you know, and the most scholarly thing, but, but it works and it's, and it's a way of getting uh, out there. And we find it's very useful in terms of engaging with scholars, scholars seeing material and thinking, hang on, I didn't know they had uh, Huguenot manuscripts. I didn't know they had uh, uh, medieval medical tracts. I didn't know they had uh, Brydenbach's uh, 1486 uh, travels to the Holy Land. So we find it uh, very useful uh, indeed. But we have a whole variety of different audiences, the tourists, uh, the people coming through the door, uh, and the scholars as well. And I think what we've learned is just to uh, embrace uh, what we're uh, dealing with uh, and to realise that we actually don't have one public that we're reaching out to, but we have several publics. And it's OK to tell uh, different stories uh, to different uh, subsects. Uh, of the public, uh, all of which uh, are equally valid. So depending on the audience, we'll often uh, describe the library as an Oxbridge public library, uh, or for continental people coming in who, for whom that wouldn't make much sense, we often uh, explain it as an early incarnation uh, of the Enlightenment in Ireland, and Ireland's part of a, of a European-wide uh, network uh, and spread of ideas. Both of those uh, statements are true, uh, but they're more relevant uh, to different uh, audiences. And one of the ways in which we reach out uh, is through uh, exhibitions. We've tried to make the exhibitions uh, much more visual, much more engaging, and at the same time, uh, much more scholarly as well. And you can see here, just coincidentally, uh, the James Joyce exhibition, which is running uh, at the moment, uh, on uh, James Joyce and Franciscanism, uh, worked on uh, with my colleague uh, Professor John McCafferty uh, and other colleagues. Uh, and essentially what we're trying to do in that is reach our traditional audiences, people who are interested uh, in James Joyce uh, and so on, but also try to tell the story of James Joyce uh, and what he was interested intellectually uh, in a range uh, of different ways. And we found actually that taking stories and reaching out, as long as the public that you're addressing and you know whom you're addressing, realise that you're addressing them uh, with some form of integrity, uh, it's quite easy to reach out to them with uh, complex uh, ideas. In a, in a world of endless chatter and endless 
uh, piffle paffle, if I can uh, use that very technical Latin phrase, uh, in, a, in a world of endless uh, piffle paffle. There is an audience uh, out there who, who, who genuinely want uh, uh, to be uh, intrigued uh, and engaged uh, with our arguments. So we found that the Joyce exhibition, which looks at Joyce through the lens of the Franciscan material that he was interested in coming to Marshes and Reed, and tries to say something about what that tells us about Joyce's engagement with the Catholic Church, but also about the nature of uh, Irish engagement with the uh, continent over the 16th and 17th century, what it was to be an Irish intellectual, to have to go abroad to write the history and literature of your nation, uh, has been very successful uh, professionally uh, in terms of tourist visitors, uh, but also uh, critically in terms of reviews in particularly the Italian uh, and the American uh, press uh, as well. Uh, and that's been very successful in terms of reaching out. But the key has been uh, addressing the audience and realising that the public is not an undifferentiated mass, that there are different publics uh, and there are different publics that we uh, focus on. One of the other publics that we've been uh, aware that we haven't uh, dealt with as well in the past is children, uh, and we've produced a children's comic. And again, that caused a, a whole range of... Uh, debates and discussions within the library saying, you know, surely this is dumbing down, uh, producing a children's comic, uh, which really focuses on the scary tales or the, the horrid history, essentially, of the institution, which would bring people through. So no longer do we talk about Edward Stillingfleet, Bishop of Worcester, or, uh, you know, Archbishop Marsh, the great bibliophile. We actually tell them the stories about the skins of the books uh, are scraped from vats of urine in which this, the leathers uh, are placed. And, and that's what the bindings on the books are. We tell them about the ghost stories and so on. And that caused real problems for my colleagues in terms of uh, reaching out and thinking, surely this is dumbing down. But so long as we're clear that there are different audiences and we can tell different stories to different audiences, uh, I don't see uh, any problem uh, at all, and I have to say, one of the things I'm very happy about uh, that is that it was the, probably the hardest thing. It's it's relatively easy to write academic articles; one doesn't need uh, any great literary st style uh, to do that. But writing a children's comic uh, with an illustrator is actually uh, quite difficult. It's probably the most difficult thing I've ever written, and I'm very glad to say that it's actually a bestseller. We've sold uh, over 500 copies in the last. Uh, two months. That's far and away greater than any print run from any academic book uh, I've ever written or am likely to write uh, in the future. So, you know, it, is, it has been a great uh, commercial uh, success for us and, uh, and a runaway uh, success, but in terms of opening up the library uh, in different ways, it's because we're confident and happy that there are different publics that we're engaging. Finally, the uh, one thing that uh, we're interested in, in next year in reaching out uh, is around uh, the decade of commemorations. Uh, it's something that a lot of historians I can see groaning uh, in the audience. Uh, whoever thought of, about making it a whole decade of commemorations, I really just don't know. I sometimes think it was a plot by some British mole uh, to, to make people entirely sick of uh, uh, the 20th, early 20th century Irish history. But it's, it's quite interesting to see... Uh, I, I, I think it's a great opportunity because I know, for example, we're all, all cultural institutions are under orders uh, from the department and various departments to have some form of 1916 exhibition. Uh, there's a real danger in the next year that actually everything in Dublin and everything in Ireland will be about 1916, that all of the millions of visitors who come to Ireland... Uh, vast majority of them who know nothing about 1916 and very many of them who care less about 1916 will have very little uh, else to do. So there is a great uh, possibility, I think, in terms of opening up uh, cultural institutions and a space uh, and taking advantage also for telling different stories, but also for interesting twists uh, on 1916. One of the most interesting things uh, that I'm enthused about in our uh, 1916 exhibition is actually looking at Shakespeare. Uh, and that seems a little mad until you realise that uh, the anniversary of the Easter Rising next year uh, is also, uh, but for one day, uh, the 400th anniversary uh, of Shakespeare's death. Uh, and the boys in Jacob's Biscuit Factory have discovered uh, in the time that they were waiting for the British to attack them and eating biscuits and being terribly constipated uh, for the whole week and not uh, firing a single shot uh, in anger, really, uh, played Julius Caesar. They played Shakespeare. 
Uh, and when you look at it, you find a whole series of ways in which we can begin to imagine 1916 again, not politically and militarily, but actually looking at it culturally, at what joins the men on both sides of the barricades together, a common uh, culture uh, of literature and, uh, and so on in terms of differences. So there are a whole range of ways in which uh, historians uh, of the early modern, of early modern art can engage in uh, aspects uh, of contemporary discourse, whether it's 1916 or, or whatever the uh, anniversary is. But I think the trick is knowing what our audiences are. There are different uh, audiences targeting those audiences, uh, being prepared to do it, being confident to doing it, and knowing uh, that if it all goes wrong, as my wife says, uh, it's not exactly air traffic control. Uh, nobody uh, is going to die. Uh, and, and really, that's our experience in, in, social, uh, in social media, in that learning how to do it, uh, failing occasionally, and learning to do it better is the key engagement uh, with the public. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, we uh, we have. Uh, we'd li- I'd like to open the floor. Uh, open up. Uh, open up to the floor now. Uh, if anyone has any questions, please do uh, put up your hand or get our attention. What did Daniel Connell write to his wife? We'll post it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote that. <laughs> Jason, I want to pick you up on, uh, a, a little bit on. Um, your comment that it's okay to tell different stories to different audiences, and then you went on to explain it in terms of, you know, sort of the rhetoric and needing to tell different stories to different audiences in order to contextualise what was there in Marshes. Um, but I suppose, just to, just to sort of uh, go back to Brendan's talk, um, one of the things that we do as academics is we tend to complicate things. We tend to want to complicate things. We want to complicate stories uh, and events and that, and we don't want to give... Um, uh, uh, you know, the simple predetermined narrative that Mike was talking about. Um, and isn't that how, how do we judge that um, are we wrong to fall into and go along with those predetermined narratives if they get us media space for example uh, I'd just love to hear the three of you speak a little bit more about how to manage that question of um, wanting to tell a story but also wanting to um, ensure that people realise the complexities of that story. and that's something that obviously will come up with the Shakespeare uh, the coincidence of the Shakespeare 1916 uh, next year too I suppose one of the most interesting things is it's often been said when academics are you know, asked to do various things, the only thing worse than being asked to do something is not being asked to do something uh, in, in terms of oh, you know, signing up for edited books and, uh, and, and so on. There are times increasingly uh, in, in Marsh's Library in the, in the last while where we've actually declined to be involved in where we've declined to be involved in Things because we felt it it did uh, it you know it it did uh, mean that we would have to compromise ourselves in, uh, in 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 certain ways and if that means then for for example that journalists who are looking for easy copy and quick copy don't come back to you well then you have to make uh, you have to make those decisions but you do have to realise that there are certain uh, there are certain formats that you get involved with, which you are edited, and TV is the one where you know I've got into trouble in the past by people saying, well, "You said this uh, on the TV." I said, "No, I didn't. I spoke for fifty minutes, yeah. uh, and I was quoted for fifteen seconds, uh, completely out of context." So, but I think you have to, it, you know, engage with uh, engage with that and be and be happy about that. And to be honest, uh, becoming too precious about it, you know, in a world in which we live in today, these things move by in, in, mm. uh, in the blink of an eye. You know, they, they are only 15 minutes of, uh, uh, of fame. Uh, and then retain, what we try to do is, we, there are a whole sort of things that we know we don't uh, control, but we try to retain uh, integrity and, and uh, in terms of the outreach around the exhibitions and things that we do uh, internally. And I suppose there is a style, it's, it's not for everyone writing uh, catalogues. Uh, like John McCafferty will, will know that. I have to say, John McCafferty, uh, we asked John to produce 1,000 words of, a, of an introduction uh, and he produced exactly 1,000 words to time. Uh, another colleague who shall remain nameless was asked to produce 1,000 words and handed me 19,000 words. Uh, <laughs> Who shall you know? I will remain nameless. So there are different there are different styles, and actually saying to people, no, you know, 
we know this is all complicated. We know this is nuanced. But save that for the Journal of American History. This is a uh, an exhibition catalogue which is aimed at an educated general person who comes in the door and has to engage them. So, no, I I understand the uh, the, the reticence, but I, I I do think it's necessary to uh, jump in and and engage. Yeah, I like what Jason was saying. I think it's 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 kind of necessary to to strike a balance by balancing, you know, just to just to get involved and to uh, do by doing. Um, uh, I suppose I would say that some of our content, the most common complaint I get about the content I produce, you know, just from people on SoundCloud, I don't get accused of uh, being a politician for genocide. I don't, know, I don't know what I'm doing wrong there, Brendan. We'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one of the things I get most often is that the, well, the content, really, I enjoyed it, but it's, it's a little bit long, or it could have been shortened up here, it could have been tightened up here, and all the rest. So I kind of... Because I'm a, I'm not a historian. I'm a normal punter. I kind of think that well, this is interesting to me, so I'm going to leave this in. And if it's 20 minutes or it's 25 minutes, if it's 30 minutes, you know, it's interesting to me. So that's I don't have to cut for for ads or anything like that. So we have a lot of a lot of freedom. But I think that's um, that's how we get around that, and that's born out of a frustration almost of people having you know people being on radio programs where they're the last 15 minute segment. And then a news item comes in, and that time gets squeezed, so they might have only 10 minutes, and then it's just a quick discussion with them at the end. So, you know, in the context of a radio program, if, it's a, if there's a, a history segment on, it'll be in the second hour, it'll be towards the end of the program, so that, you know, the producer knows, well, if I can cut one thing, it's going to be the historian launching his or her book. Um, uh, so I, I suppose that's what one of the things we try to do is... Uh, is uh, is to get out of the way of the historian and let them let them tell the story and get into all the nuance they could ever imagine. I, I think one of the problems with trying to figure out where the problems are is you often don't find out until you present it, right? Um, and then at that point, it's obviously too late, right? And so I think one of the problems with public outreach, um, you know, myself being an academic, but also um, involved in helping to direct a humanities institute, is that it tends to be unilateral. It works in one direction. And I think that what we need is more, or to match the reaching out, the welcoming in, right? Because otherwise you don't have the conversation. Um, there's no dynamic do you know what I mean? That the entire world becomes my undergraduate class. And as my undergraduates will say, that, that's a horror not to be visited upon uh, any more people. Um, and, but then, but how do you figure that out? Like, I mean, I mean uh, so like, okay, I'm going to do an exhibition on English-Irish relations. You know, do I go to sort of advertising models and I have like a focus group? Like, hey... What's complex and acceptable, and what is akin to Holocaust denial? Um, and then, you know, and then I'll sort it out. And so, but nevertheless, you know, I, one of the things that we're attempting to do in the Humanities Institute is actually try to bring in fellows, because we always bring in fellows who are working on academic projects, so finishing a monograph or some such thing, but we're now starting to bring in, or working on bringing in practitioners. Right. So people who are involved in community relations or uh, artists, right, you know, um, and so on and so forth. Because I think unless you actually have some of those outside of the academy of voices, you know, at the table as you start to really think about these questions, then you're always in a situation where, say, and I think it's, it's different for these guys, right, you know, um, uh, you know, director of, uh, of a library and somebody who's, you know, obviously working in kind of public history. So, you know, I'm just kind of some stiff, you know, who's, um, you know, working in an office like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe I want to present some of my research. And um, I think what happens is you just get people who uh, just simply won't, won't do it, right? Um, I mean, after an experience like mine, I mean, I talked to a bunch of people who just said, yeah, I, I had experience like that. I'll never do it again. Like, the hell with it. Um, so anyway, the idea of trying to sort of get that conversation going, I think is really, really important. So, but it's really not different. I mean, it's really not easy. Uh, oh, we just have time for one more question, I think. And Paul, do you want? To... Just one brief question uh, for Jason. Next door to you, you have two of you in marshes. You have St. Patrick's and then uh, Dublin Castle, Christchurch, and all of those. But your other neighbour on the other side from St. Patrick's is the old Archbishop's Palace. 
and I know OPW is in the process, it goes back to John Cohen around 1200. Do you have any thoughts on how that might be developed, or are you going to make submissions to the OPW? They're looking for suggestions and ideas at the moment, and it seems to me that in terms of you know, the, the whole synergy of that area, there's an incredible synergy there, potential synergy, which would be uh, an awful pity that we wouldn't exploit and, uh, and, and develop. That's a good example of the the kind of the connection between academic and and public uh, history because it, it is for those who don't know it it's a beautiful building it's going to become derelict unless it's used uh, and we have put in a, a quite a detailed proposal uh, to the Office of Public Works with uh, St Patrick's Cathedral uh, to reconstitute. St. Sepulchre's Palace uh, to redo it. Uh, the OPW have said basically that anyone who comes up with a proper business model for that site can have the site essentially uh, mm. because it costs 10 million to uh, redo it and, uh, and, they, and they don't want to get caught with that. So our uh, thing that we have in common with St. Patrick's uh, is Jonathan Swift. There is no Jonathan Swift uh, centre uh, in Dublin. So we're looking at developing uh, the Jonathan Swift experience uh, which will be uh, a mass uh, tourist uh, uh, experience in, in the front, but which would also provide a space uh, for a cultural space and lecture theatres for ourselves in St. Patrick. So there are very uh, strong plans to develop that and actually help to develop cultural tourism in the region because the other thing that people need to be aware of is that uh, certainly over the last few years and into the next few years, the only people with money around and who have money but relatively few ideas on how to do this are uh, Tourism Ireland uh, and Falcha Ireland and the people behind the Dubline and they're actively looking uh, for ideas based on history uh, and culture in Dublin. Uh, yeah, um, I wanted to uh, comment on um, Brendan's uh, listening to what you, you had to say. Uh, obviously the audience was somewhat different. I, I thought we were transposed back into the revisionist debate in the mm -hmm. 1980s, I was thinking about um, present-centred history and purposeful unhistoricity, and uh, we had a whole series of issues at the, the, the time, and uh, people got extremely upset about what was being said, and, mm -hmm. uh, and so on, uh, and then things went away, and uh, uh, we never resolved the issues, and if you take those two words, um, present-centred history and purposeful on historicity, I, I think they apply fairly well to mm. what you're talking about with an Irish American audience there. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the echoes the echoes are very very clear. Although I mean, although I mean, it's interesting because I do think I mean the people that the people took issue with me in certain ways. You know, I'm uh, kind of I, I, I understand it. You know, um, I understand the perspective. I may not agree with it. And I think one of the real frustrations was the inability for people who were also interested in the materials that I was interested in, the ideas that I was interested in, didn't have a voice, you know. Uh, and so in, in a way kind of felt a bit being lectured to. And that wasn't what I had intended to do. And so, but that is the dynamic, or, or that's the sort of context, right? But the the means or the mode by which that conversation can occur, I just think are utterly unmapped. And um, it's important. People write mean stuff because they've read it and they're interested. But we haven't figured out a way to have those kinds of conversations in a way that people feel their voices are being heard um, and it doesn't turn into either sort of ad hominem attack or people just disappearing and not engaging. So, But yes, it, it's very, very much like that, but just, you know... In, in the blogosphere. So. Okay, um, I'm very sorry to say this, but we've actually kind of, we've run out of time, but obviously we can go up and have teas and coffees then. But I'd just like to thank our three speakers for what has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you very much.